The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we want to continue uh, another session of uh, talks on uh, uh, Mahasajipatthana Sutta. Uh, as uh, I have mentioned earlier, this is a very big uh, sutta, very important sutta. Uh, it takes uh, entire lifetime to study and practice this sutta. Uh, therefore, to give a summary of it is not very easy. However, within this uh, short period, I try to uh, give a brief account of the rest of the discourse. This morning I uh, focused on uh, the introduction to the Sutta. Then uh, I explained uh, five purposes and uh, then uh, four clear comprehensions and I also mentioned what uh, the the world means Uh, and I spent uh, some time explaining our domain, that is this uh, five aggregates, uh, what we call panchakhanda. So out of this uh, uh, evolve the rest of the discourse, the practice. Uh, First is mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of the body is divided into six uh, classes, six groups. First group is mindfulness of breathing. Second group is uh, mindfulness of the postures. Third is mindfulness of uh, uh, detail of the posture, which is called clear comprehension which is not the title of the sutta itself, but, I mean, not even subtitle of the sutta, but it is classified as a clear comprehension. Fourth is uh, mindfulness of uh, the parts of the body, 32 parts of the body. Fifth is uh, mindfulness of uh, the... Uh, four elements, uh, and the sixth is mindfulness of uh, the process of uh, corpse after death. Now, let us take one uh, of them first, that is mindfulness of breathing. 
By the way, as I mentioned earlier, <coughs> I want to repeat these very important instructions again and again for uh, us to have uh, some better understanding of this uh, practice. Although these things are mentioned in this order, in our experience they don't occur in this order. They don't happen in this order. Uh, in order to, as a teaching method, teaching techniques, the list is given. When you list something, you have to list them in certain way, not exactly in the uh, way of priority. This list is not the priority list. But as in order to teach, these things are listed like this. In experience, uh, they ex we experience in uh, in a very uh, uh, random, sporadic way. So as things happen, we become mindful of them. And don't try to arrange them in a certain order. It never happens. Just like when you arrange your kitchen, you put your uh, big meat-cutting knife in one place and then other knives in other places and a very fine uh, knife to mince your onion you put in other place, a small spoon, big spoon, your tongs, your forks and uh, uh, frying pan, wok and uh, big pots and small pots and so forth. You put them in the kitchen, arrange in certain way, put even numbers and arrange them in the number, according to number and hang them on those hooks as you numbered. Suppose you have big knives first and then knives according to their sizes, then pots and pan according to their sizes, and uh, forks according to their sizes, tongs according to their sizes, and so forth, you <laughs> put them in that order. When you go to the kitchen, uh, you want to boil on uh, only one cup of water. You don't go, you don't reach the number one, which is big pot. <laughs> you reach the small pot. Because that time you need only a small pot to boil one cup of water. Similarly, in practice, uh, we don't practice according to the way, in the way they are listed. We practice as they happen. Remember this. However, the, in all meditation instructions in the Buddha, one thing he always mentioned as number one is breathing. So when we do anything, we become aware of the breath first. I mean, when we become mindful, we become aware of the breath first. There's a reason for that. 
Ephesians when we are mindful of the breathing it opens your mind to other areas very easily for example uh, when you when you focus them on on your on the breath uh, you become uh, uh, easily aware of uh, your body feeling perceptions volitional formations and consciousness which are involved in breathing for example the breath is the body i mentioned this in the morning breath is the body why it is called body body has certain attribute qualities characters what are the attribute of the body what is the body made up of it is made up of elements earth element water element fire element and air element the breath is made up of these four elements and how do we know elements we don't know elements you cannot pinpoint you put your finger on elements <laughs> although we talk about elements have you seen earth element have you seen water element air element fire element no we can see earth element in combination of many other things and therefore you cannot separate earth element but we can become aware of the earth element by through its characteristics what are the characteristics of earth element it is either hard or soft if something is hard or soft that indicates it has earth element for instance when you breathe in and out we feel the touch of breath the touch is there because of the presence of earth element and then we feel the breath no then uh, we have the breath uh, is the sometimes uh, dry or sometimes wet knowing these two we know that the breath has what element sometimes breath is uh, dry uh, sometimes breath is hot sometimes it is cool then through this characteristic we know breath has heat element fire element and breath is moving in and out therefore we know breath is air element since all these four elements are present in the breath we know the breath is a form body so we know the body or form aggregate through these elements elements we know through their characteristics so when you know one you can see the other 
easily related to each other. When we use the breath, we also feel the breath. That is a feeling aggregate. Uh, there is no way to know the breath except through the feelings. Sometimes we feel pleasant breath, sometimes not pleasant. We feel sometimes long breath, sometimes short breath. When we breathe in and out, when the lungs are full, we experience a degree of tension because we cannot breathe anymore. That is the feeling of tension. And then when we breathe out, that tension is released, then we experience the relief of tension. That is another feeling. We feel the expansion and contraction of a lung area. That is another feeling. So, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feeling, all the feelings are there in the breath. That is a feeling aggregate. And also we see uh, perception, we have to perceive all these things in order to... Perception means recognition. We recognize the touch, we recognize the sensation, we recognize the expansion and contraction, we recognize the uh, tension and release of tension and so forth. All these are our perceptions. Therefore, that is perception aggregate. And we do all these things with intention. In order to know all these things, we do intention. So, that is called in, intentional attention, paying to the breath, is called volitional formations. And also, we are fully aware of it. That is consciousness aggregate. So, all the five aggregates are involved in breathing. What we do in Vipassana meditation, is there is a chorus, I must say, like in uh, your singing, you have a chorus. What is the chorus? We become aware of rising, falling, rising, falling. Samude dhamma anupasiva kāyasmin viharati, vayadhamma anupasiva kāyasmin viharati. We become, we live becoming aware of rising, we become, we live becoming aware of falling. The word viharati also is very important. Viharati means lives. So many a time people uh, use the mind meditation and say, you got to sit to meditate. And sitting and meditation has become so, uh, and so, so, uh, what do you call, uh, uh, synonymous that uh, uh, these days, especially in the West, people, uh, instead of calling meditation groups, they simply say sitting groups. Assuming meditation is something you do only in sitting. 
If sitting is meditation, when you are in the office, you are sitting, working on computers. When you are sitting on your driver's seat, driving, and when you do hundreds of things, sometimes very meaningless, sometimes unwholesome things, you are just sitting. So sitting uh, should not be equated with meditation. Therefore, sitting group is not correct term, because you assume that you have to sit to meditate. Meditation, especially mindfulness meditation, can be done in any posture. So the being mindful, aware of all these things, you live. Kaye kaya nupasi viharati. Viharati means living. So we live with mindfulness. Living does not mean sitting in one place. Living means getting involved in countless activities. So, being involved in countless activities, we become mindful. So, in every activity, in every place, we breathe. And therefore, when we become mindful of the breath, we can use that awareness, that mindfulness in any posture. And therefore, this is called the primary object of meditation. That is the object of breath. Breath is the object. And breath is the object of meditation or subject of meditation uh, of uh, Prince Siddhartha before he attained enlightenment. Remember when he was sitting under the uh, rose apple tree while uh, there was a ploughing festival. As a little child, the nurses took him there and put under the rose apple tree and they joined the ploughing festival. When they came back, he saw them, they saw him sitting and meditating. What he did was he used the breath and gained concentration. So he started using the breath even as a little child. When he sat to attain enlightenment under the Bodhi tree at the age of twenty, and 39, 35, he started using the breath. After attaining enlightenment, one day Vendabal Ananda asked the Buddha, Vendabal, sir, if people ask me whether, uh, what, uh, what subject you use for meditation, tell, Buddha said, tell them I use the breath. And if they ask you again, what subject I use, what, whether I meditate on the attainment of enlightenment, tell them, yes, I am still meditating. And then if they ask again what subject I use to my meditate after attaining enlightenment, tell them I am still using the breath. Why it is so important? Breath is the, it is called in Pali, Pāna. Pāna means life. Pāṇātipāta vermani sikhāpadam samādhyāmi we say, where pāṇa means life. Breathing is called pāṇa, ānā pāṇa, inhaling and exhaling. Breath, inhale, breath, exhale. 
Therefore, prana is life. It is very true. What we do, we bring oxygen. Without oxygen, can we live? <laughs> no. We have to breathe oxygen in and out, in, all the time. In order to live. And therefore, the breath is used as a primary object for many reasons. So, in mindfulness meditation, uh, we become aware of it. And become aware of rising and falling. Rising and falling also is very important. Uh, there, is a, there are three words. Be mindful of rising, be mindful of falling, be mindful of rising and falling. If you remember the, the passage in Adama, mindfulness of breathing or Satipatthana Sutta, it says, Samudaya dhammanu pasiva kāyasmīṁ viharati, vaya dhammanu pasiva kāyasmīṁ viharati, samudaya vaya dhammanu pasiva kāyasmīṁ viharati. That means we live being mindful of rising, we live being mindful of falling, we live being mindful of rising and falling. Sometimes people translate this it as one time you become mindful of rising, another time you become mindful of falling, another time you become mindful of rising and falling. That means today you practice mindfulness of rising and wait till tomorrow to be mindful of falling. And another day to see, to become mindful of rising and falling. You can take a week, month, year to practice these three, according to that interpretation. That's a completely wrong interpretation. The truth is, here is the, the important thing of knowing the Dhamma. And Buddha said, because because there are three characteristics of all conditioned things. What are they? Their rising is perceptible, knowable, their falling is perceptible, and knowable, and their mutation between rising and falling, they are mutate, they are changed, they change. That also is perceptible and knowable. You know, mutation takes place from the moment of embryo, very first time you have a unicellular being conceived in the mother's womb, it started mutating from that moment, changing, 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 changing. So, we become aware of these three stages of sankhara, that is a sankhara. Of course, the word sankhara is in the, used in the wider sense here. Uh, everything is sankhara, everything that has a 
these characteristic rising, falling and mutation, uh, they are called upada, titi, bhanga, rising moment, peak moment as passing away moment. Rising moment is changing, peak moment is changing, and passing away moment is changing. Peak moment is not static moment. Peak moment also is continuous change. So when you breathe in and out, in one breath you can see rising moment and peak moment and passing away moment hundreds of times in one inhaling and hundreds of times in one exhaling. In one inhaling you can see hundreds of times rising, run hundreds of times falling, and hundreds of times rising and falling. I give you an example. One day, uh, three bhikkhus came to see the Buddha. This is an example of death. Uh, one bhikkhu said to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, if I live long enough to collect my arms food and consume, eat it, and that time is long enough for me to attain enlightenment. Second monk said, Venerable Sir, if I live long enough to eat the food that I have in my arms bowl, that time is enough for me to attain enlightenment. Third monk said, Venerable Sir, if I live long enough to take one inhaling and one exhaling, that is enough time for me to attain enlightenment. Then Buddha praised this monk, the last one. Why? He is the one who sees this rising, falling, and rising and falling in one breath, in one inhaling and one exhaling. That means mindfulness of impermanence of this monk is so sharp, so deep, so profound that he would see rising, falling, rising and falling in one breath. So, Every time we breathe in and out, we should be fully aware of the entire breathing process and entire rising, falling, and rising and falling in each breath. That sounds very subtle, difficult. Friends, I assure you, if you practice, you really will see this phenomena in your mindfulness breathing. So, uh, so Buddha started with the breath for this reason. One who is of first category of those four people I mentioned this morning, Uggatitanya, quick-witted person, that person needs only one inhaling, one exhaling, even to attain full enlightenment. 
He doesn't need too long, too ex- much explanation. So in Mahasatipattana Sutta begins, Mahasatipattana Sutta begins with this exercise of mindfulness of breathing for this reason. And then you don't have to do um, anything deliberately except paying total attention without saying anything it was. Don't say, I inhale long, I inhale, exhale long, I inhale short, or I inhale, exhale short. Don't say that in words. Simply be aware of long inhaling as long inhaling, without subject-predicate. When you use the subject-predicate, I, subject, inhale, exhale, is predicate. Without this distinction between subject and predicate, simply be aware of inhaling and exhaling as if it happenings both as one. That means the one who becomes, one who breathes in and out, and one who becomes aware of it must be one. Don't separate these two. When we separate, we tend to use words, concepts, ideas, labels, and simply become totally involved in the breathing. Then, when the breath becomes short, we become aware of the way, the same way. Now the breath is short, become fully aware of it, inhaling and exhaling. Then, we become uh, aware of the whole breath body. What is the whole breath body? That is the beginning, middle, an end of each breath body, each breath. That means when the when we breathe in, when the very first time the breath touches the rims of our nostrils, we begin we become aware of that very beginning. And then the breath continues to flow into the lungs until the lungs are full. That whole stretch of inhaling breath is the middle of inhaling. And then when the lungs are full, inhaling stops. Inhaling cuts off. That is the end of inhaling. And we become aware of that. And then exhaling begins. And we become become aware of the beginning of exhaling. And then the whole stretch of exhaling breath till the end of it is the middle of exhaling. We become aware of that. When exhaling, that when there is no more breath in our lungs, exhaling cuts off. That is the end of exhaling. We become aware of that. This is the unmistakable, unconfusing repetition of breath each time we breathe in and out. 
they will never confuse, never mix up. That always is in that order. We become aware of that. And each time we become aware of it, we see this rising, falling, and rising and falling. When we become aware of the whole breath body. And then what happens? When we are totally aware of that, mind is totally lodged in the breath, and the body and mind become so relaxed, calm and peaceful. It naturally happens. Friends, it is not just that quick, but uh, that is what naturally happens. When the body and mind becomes calm and relaxed and peaceful, then one hindrance arises. Now, hindrances are, some, hindrances are mentioned at the Dhamma Vasana. One of the five categories of Dhamma Vasana is mindfulness of hindrances. Now, while practicing mindfulness of breathing, we experience hindrances. One hindrance is very common thing. When everything is calm, relaxed, and peaceful, we feel sleepy, drowsy. We don't have to wait until the entire four foundations of mindfulness is over to experience hindrances. It happens at the very beginning. That is why I said, uh, although the things are arranged in certain order, they don't happen in that order. So we have to be mindful in the way as they happen. So when the, when we, uh, when the body and mind are relaxed, Buddha said, be becoming aware of a relaxed, pasam bhayankaya sankaram asasisami sikhati, pasam bhayankaya sankaram asasisami sikhati. Being aware of relaxed, relaxed the body and mind, you breathe in and out. Being aware of relaxed body and mind, you breathe in and out. That is mindfulness. But when we try to be aware of relaxed mind and body, instead of becoming aware of relaxed, and relaxed mind and body, we become unaware of relaxed mind and body. As a result, we fall asleep. Then, sometimes we sit for one hour, at the end of the hour, we ring the bell, the person who is in this deep meditation wakes up and said, I had a wonderful meditation. I was in the fourth jhana. I didn't feel anything, I didn't hear anything. You talked for the whole hour, I did not hear anything because I was in deep concentration, highest jhana. Now, and this is a hindrance. Especially, uh, there are a lot of hindrances. Uh, particularly this hindrance of uh, uh, sleepiness and drowsiness is very common, especially in uh, uh, affluent societies. 
Because when you come to meditate, you have two cushions under your knee, each knee, and three cushions to sit on, and four cushions to lean against. The room is air-conditioned, and there is no noise. It's a soundproof, and it's comfortable in summer with air condition and comfortable in winter with heat, and so forth. Everything is very, very good to have this hindrance of sleepiness and drowsiness. So the mindful meditator don't wait until the last foundation of mindfulness to practice, to experience this uh, particular mental state. It happens at the very beginning. So we have to overcome that. Friends, that is a subject by itself. It takes a long time to explain how to overcome these hindrances, how they arise and so forth. Anyway, <laughs> you begin with mindfulness of breathing. And as hindrances arise, as they arise, as not as they listed. You know, in, my, in the hindrances also listed as first, Kama Chanda, Vyapada, Tinamidda, Uddhacha Kukucha, Vichikicha and so forth, listed in that order. But they don't happen in that order. As they happen, you deal with them. And then, then again, you use, the, you use your chorus all the time. Every moment you breathe in and out, you use the chorus. What is the chorus? Become aware of rising phenomena, falling phenomena, and rising and falling phenomena. In mindfulness meditation, these three things have to be repeated millions of times. And these three things are the, the core or heart of vipassana meditation. That means we become fully aware of impermanence, anicca, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, and selflessness, anatta. Seeing anicca, dukkha, anatta are the main trust of vipassana meditation. So whether you are breathing, inhaling, exhaling, whether you experience perceptions, volitional formations, consciousness and mind and so forth, you become aware of these three things. As I said then, next, the second class of uh, the mindfulness of the body is the posture. As I said, meditation, mindfulness meditation is not confined only to sitting meditation. That is why the Buddha mentioned the posture. Postures are four, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. We have to use all of them to become aware of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness of the body. Everything we experience must be used to understand impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness, anicca, dukkha, anatta. So, in posture, all these four postures should be practiced equally. It is like balancing or aligning your wheels of your vehicle. When you go for wheel alignment, 
you don't align on one wheel, only or two. You have to align, balance all the four wheels in order to make your vehicle run smoothly. Similarly, in order to carry on your meditation practice properly and become aware of mindfulness, of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness, use every posture, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, uh, equally distributing your time in all of them. And then the third is uh, clear, uh, what do you call, clear comprehension of uh, uh, activities. Sitting, standing, walking, lying down, also activities. These are very uh, small number. Then Buddha went on expanding this into the third mindfulness of practice, mindfulness practice. Third is clear comprehension, as I mentioned this morning. Clear comprehension of uh, walking forward and walking backward. Walking backward doesn't mean that you walk uh, backward, facing one direction and you walk back. No. <laughs> walking backward means you return to the same place where you started. And then that is in walking meditation particularly, uh, using your total mindfulness, always to see impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness in walking forward, and to see the same thing when you walk backward. And then, uh, when you turn your head in one direction or to the other direction, you remain mindful. And sometimes there's a great misunderstanding about that also. There is a, <coughs> a discourse in Madhyam Nikaya uh, in that discourse, uh, uh, I just try to remember the name of the discourse. Anyway, this is the point. If I remember the name, I let I tell you the name. Otherwise, just remember the incident. A man went to see the Buddha. Uh, to verify the the things that he had heard of the Buddha. Buddha was very famous. He was reputed for being fully enlightened and so forth. Uh, and he was watching the Buddha. He was watching the Buddha walking forward and turning and walking backward. When the Buddha, uh, he watched and he saw Buddha uh, walking very mindfully and then he turned very slowly, mindfully, 
in the way I explained this morning, and walked back. And this man saw, at one point, Buddha's entire body was turning along with the head. So, he concluded that the Buddha did not turn his head without turning the body. That means the Buddha always turned the body and the head at the same time. So his conclusion was that uh, Buddha never never turned his head to see something without turning his body. Normally that doesn't happen unless you have a stiff neck. And uh, when you are sitting, if uh, you want to, you know, turn your head somewhere to see something, you while sitting, you don't turn your whole body. I mean, it's impossible to turn the whole posture, sitting posture. You have to turn your head. When he saw this Buddha turning his entire body and head, at one point when he was turning in his walking meditation, he concluded incorrectly, mistakenly, that the Buddha would not turn his head without turning the body. And he compared it to an elephant. Because when you, when elephant, Buddha always compared to elephant. When the elephant, I don't know whether you have seen it, when elephant turns, uh, he uh, turns his head, uh, especially when a lion is approaching the elephant, uh, elephant uh, want to protect his neck. In order to protect the neck, elephant turn his head, the body along with the neck, along with the head. Because the lion jumps onto his neck. Neck is the smallest uh, vital organ in the elephant, so that lion can uh, sink his uh, canine teeth into elephant's uh, uh, arteries to... Uh, to immobilize, immobilize him. Elephant knows that. Therefore, when the elephant turns, he always, when the lion approaches, elephant turns towards lion with the body. That means he covers the neck with the body. When he turns with the body, with, with the body, he covers his neck with his body. So the elephant, the lion cannot uh, grab his neck. In order to protect the neck, elephant do that. So this man uh, concluded that the Buddha was like elephant, uh, does not turn his head without turning the body. But the meaning of that is that Buddha was always mindful 
when he turned, uh, and uh, he is uh, like an elephant, he always remained mindful. And he used mindfulness for, for turning his body and head in the walking meditation. So, it is called Satipatthana Givhoso. That means Buddha's mindfulness is like elephant protecting his neck. Buddha's mindfulness kept him always in a, a safe position. He would never lose it. In order to show how deep the Buddha's mindfulness is, this simile is used in the discourse. Uh, that means when we turn, we have to be we have to turn with mindfulness. When we stand, we stand with mindfulness, and when we walk, we walk with mindfulness. That means the key in all these activities is mindfulness, remaining mindful, and that is why I mentioned this morning that um, the the purpose of uh, the practice is to remain mindful, to achieve the purpose. Even after achieving the purpose, we remain mindful, as the Buddha did. Then, uh, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, uh, eating, drinking, wearing clothes, uh, answering the call of nature, and uh, uh, speaking, uh, and uh, whatever activities we are activities we are engaged, we must remain mindful. Modern term, uh, some people uh, uh, say that when you they give very famous uh, example of washing dishes. When you wash dishes, you must be mindful. What kind of mindfulness they want them to have when they wash dishes? Pay attention to your washing dishes. Pay attention to washing dishes so that you will not leave any dirt on the dish. If that is mindfulness, then all these dishwashers in restaurants are practicing mindfulness. That is not the kind of mindfulness we should uh, practice. While washing dishes, or while engaged in any activity, we must be mindful of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. We must be mindful of what kind of mental state arises at that time, whether greed, hatred, or delusion, or generosity, loving friendliness, compassion, appreciative joy, or wisdom, uh, uh, sadda, faith, uh, and uh, perseverance, energy, and uh, uh, determination to stay with the practice, and so forth. When these are the things that we have to be mindful while we are engaged in our activities, while washing dishes, greed can arise, hatred can arise, confusion can arise, fear can arise, 
and uh, uncertainty can arise, jealousy can arise. We become mindful of it right then and there to get rid of that. And we can see impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness. So we always must return to the very true Dhamma, the reality, established Dhamma, Dhamma element as Buddha said. Dhamma element, established Dhamma, which exists whether the Buddha has come into existence or not. These things are happening to us all the time. That is the kind of mindfulness we should have while engaged in any activity, going always back to our root. That is where we need um, uh, mindful attention, what is called Yonso Manasikara. I use very uh, good uh, Buddha's own example to uh, illustrate uh, mindful reflection, what is called Yonso Manasikara. Yoniso Manasikara has a very profound, deep meaning. Uh, we can understand the meaning through similes. The Buddha simile is a uh, simile of uh, uh, dog and lion. That is, when you throw a stick or rock to a dog, dog will run at the stick or the rock, and pick it up. But if you throw a rock or stick to a lion, lion will not run after the stick or the rock, lion will run after you. (laughs) Who threw the stick? Mindful reflection is like a lion going to the root. It is called Yoniso Manasikara. Yoni means origin. Beginning. Manasikara means reflection. Beginning is the beginning of roots. What are the roots? Three unwholesome roots, three wholesome roots. And you will see whether this particular mental state arose from greed, from hatred, or from delusion, or whether it arose from non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Always go to the root, the origin of this particular mental state. The dog will run after the stick. Similarly, unmindful reflection will go after the symptoms. When greed arises, you promote greed, thinking, Ah, wonderful, very nice, beautiful, you appreciate, keep appreciating, wrong thing. You, you, you bet the wrong horse and keep going on betting on the wrong horse and get carried away. That is unmindful reflection. So Buddha said, unmindful reflection nourish the root of unwholesome things. Mindful reflection suffocate unwholesome roots. Cut off all the oxygen to unwholesome roots, <laughs> so it will die. Mindful reflection give lifeline to unwholesome things and pump more oxygen to it to live. So when we walk, stand, lie down, talk, 
especially when we talk, we got to talk mindfully. And when we listen, we must listen mindfully. When we talk mindfully, we even can attain enlightenment. When we listen mindfully, we can attain enlightenment. And that is why listening to Dhamma is one of the three factors of attaining the stream entry. What is, that is called Yomiso, what is called Paratogosa Pachaya. Paratogosa Pachaya means the factor or the cause of hearing the sound of others. Gosa means sound, not any sound of jazz or rock and roll, but the sound of Dhamma. When you hear the Dhamma, mindfully you can attain stream entry. There's a beautiful saying in, uh, there are many, many incidents, but uh, sometimes this sort of uh, pity statements help us to remember the meaning. The story, this story is uh, recorded in Sanyuta Nikaya commentary, which was written in Sri Lanka. It says, uh, Dhamata sari kota eluven peraki khaviyata sita pahada sita nisaki sihikota kandra pili vela dosnoyeki nivanata sapamini sangha sata namaki. That is, having listened to a, dham, to a song, Composed on Dhamma, sixty monks attain enlightenment. A woman sang a song composed on Dhamma. Sixty monks were walking in a forest. First they heard the sound. And since the woman's voice was and uh, temptation for the man. Uh, and Buddha said that in Anguttara Nikaya, "Naham bike anyang ek sadham pi samunipasami yad yate dang itiru iti sadham iti sadham bike ve purusha sittam pariyadai tittadi." Because I don't know any other sound that uh, uh, captured the ears of man other than the sound of a woman. And that goes the other way around also. And therefore these monks, since they had not attained enlightenment, as soon as they heard the sound of this singing, the ear went there and they were listening, listening and walking. And as they approached, they began to understand the word. They heard the word very distinctly. And then they contemplated mindfully on the meaning of the words. And these are real Dhamma song. And they contemplated on that. They forgot about the female's voice. Voice of femaleness. Voice of uh, the sweetness. Although that was the origin, beginning of paying the attention, 
but gradually their mindfulness delves into the depth of the meaning of what they, of what they recited and attain enlightenment. And therefore, Buddha said, uh, with clear comprehension, with yoniso manasikara, we must listen to the sound of Dhamma. That will be helpful to attain enlightenment. Of course, there are five ways of attaining enlightenment. Uh, one is listening. Second is teaching. While teaching, you can attain enlightenment. There is a story in a Sanyutta Nikaya called Khemaka Sutta. Vendabal Khemaka was an elderly monk, and uh, he was explaining Dhamma to a group of other elderly monks. And when he was teaching Dhamma to other elderly monks, when there were uh, those, all these monks listening to this Dhamma sermon of this Vendable Khemaka, they all attain enlightenment. And Vendable Khemaka also attain enlightenment at the same time. This is one incident we can see in the Buddha's teaching where both the teacher, preacher, as well as the audience attain enlightenment at the same time. <laughs> so Buddha said, even teaching Dhamma with deep understanding, deep concentration, very clear vision, one can attain enlightenment. Third method is chanting. When you select meaningful discourse, like uh, Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta. You read Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta with very... Uh, and understand the meaning and recite it very mindfully with total devotion and dedication you can attain the stream entry. How it happens? The mind becomes so calm, relaxed and peaceful, tranquil, you gain concentration. With the concentrated mind, you can see the depth of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness in the minutest, subtlest way, and then attain, gain insight, wisdom, attain enlightenment. Fourth way is taking a very deep Dhamma discourse and investigate the meaning with deep understanding. That also leads to attain the stage of enlightenment. Fifth way is what we call meditation. Taking a subject of meditation like Anapanasati Sutta, Mahasatipattana Sutta and practice, you attain enlightenment. So, for these reasons, Buddha said, when you walk, when you talk, when you listen, when you eat, when you drink, wear clothes as the call of nature, always maintain your mindfulness of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness of the five aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations and consciousness to gain deeper insight to attain enlightenment. Anytime you can attain it. 
You don't have to practice everything to attain enlightenment. You need only one of these twenty-one subjects mentioned in Mahasatipatthana Sutta. He repeated this instruction twenty-one times in Mahasatipatthana Sutta. The chorus. Similarly, he mentioned this about uh, feelings, mental, uh, what you call, consciousness and mental activities, all are divided into these groups. Anyway, that is the second aspect of the kāyānupāsana, mindfulness of the body. What is the first? Mindfulness of no, this is the third. Mindfulness of breathing is one. Mindfulness is the posture is second. Mindfulness of uh, clear comprehension of walking, standing, turning, bending, wearing clothes and engaging in any activity. We perform countless activities every single day. If we perform all these activities with total mindfulness, any moment, any time, any day, we can attain stages of enlightenment. And the fourth way, fourth uh, group in mindfulness of the body is uh, dividing the body into thirty-two parts and take them and focus your mind to gain insight. This is another controversial subject, uh, mostly misunderstood part of uh, four foundations of mindfulness. And it is uh, invariably listed in many places as uh, mindfulness practice to overcome lust. Overcome lust. Uh, the word used in Pali is for this particular practice section is called Patikula Manasikara. Patikula Manasikara. Patikula, uh, there are, there's, when we understand the opposite of the, of Patikula, then we understand the uh, meaning of Patikula. Opposite of Patikula is Anukula. Anukula means going with the grain, going with the current. Patikula means going against the current, against the grain. What is Anukula? Anukula means, uh, what is Anukula practice? Going with the grain. The body is beautiful. Body is beautiful. That is the normal belief. Normal belief is body is beautiful. This is Buddha called Asube Subhasanya, distorted perception. Asubhe Subhasanya. That which is not beautiful, we consider it to be beautiful. 
Of course, this is a very difficult subject. Many people even get upset and get up and walk away, <laughs> saying that, how can you say that? The whole world knows the body is beautiful. And we want to make it even more beautiful. And we want to make the whole cosmetic industry very rich to maintain this beauty. It is beautiful and we want to maintain it. How can you say that it is not beautiful? People will be, you know, up in arm against me if I say it in public. Against the Buddha. When I was in the we could training, what you call, missionaries training school in Sri Lanka. My teacher, very learned, very insightful, wonderful teacher, he cautioned us, warned us against this topic. He said, if you happen to go to the West, don't talk about particular manasikara. <laughs> you will be thrown to death. Stoned to death. Because people don't like that. Unfortunately, I happened to be here, I had to talk about it. <laughs> so, Anukula is that we consider the body to be beautiful. When we look at the body mindfully, insightfully, it is not so. I, I tell you a little bit more about it later. Then, that is Anukula. Particular means going against that. Don't think that way. We know our hair is beautiful, and when we have bushy, healthy, uh, protein-rich hair, <laughs> we are so proud of our hair. And we spend a lot of time spending to make the hair more beautiful. <laughs> when you go somewhere, the first thing you do is go to the uh, beauty shop, what you call a hairdresser, and get your hair done. Of course, when we go out, we shave our head, and no hair is there. So, this hair is beautiful, clean, shampoo, wash and so forth and so on. Beautiful hair. Everybody first, when they look at somebody, the first thing they see is the hair. So, <laughs> they have to make, therefore, their head look beautiful. And after washing, cleaning, shampooing and making it, uh, you know, uh, sanitized and so forth, <laughs> You eat your soup. One hair from your own head falls, falls into the bowl of soup. What would you do? You say, yuck! You throw the whole bowl of soup away. Where did this hair come from? From your own beautiful hair. From your own head. When it was on the head, it is so beautiful. When it falls into a bowl of soup, it is so ugly. 
Where is the beauty? So, if you mindfully reflect, it doesn't matter whether the hair is on the head or in the bowl of soup. You treat the hair exactly the same way. You just take the hair out and throw it away and eat your soup. That's not going to kill you. Because you have cleaned your hair, washed it, shampooed it, sanitized it. It is clean. So what is the wrong with throwing away that hair and eating your soup? But we don't have that perception. This is called distorted perception. So when we practice mindfulness, we go against it. That is called patikula manasikara. You don't hate hair or you don't love it. You treat it as something impermanent. When you have misunderstanding of this, either you hate it or you become attached to it. I tell you an example, a story. Venerable Sariputta had a student who was full of lust. And Venerable Sariputta gave him this subject to practice mindfulness of loathsomeness of body or particular manasikara, meditate on 32 parts of the body. This monk went and sat under a tree and focused on this subject. Instead of weakening his lust, his lust increased. Perhaps he was focusing his mind on the wrong body. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he came back to Vendabhar Sahariputta and reported this to him. And Vendabhar said, it doesn't work. My lust increases. And he said, no, go, practice, use this. This is the subject that you need. You are full of lust. Second time he tried, didn't work. Third time he tried, didn't work. Then finally Venerable Sariputta said, okay, let us go to the Buddha. You know, this, this teaches us another, another very good lesson. Venerable Sariputta was Buddha's one of the two chief disciples, fully enlightened Narahan. Venerable Sariputta was known for his wisdom. When the Buddha gave a short sermon and asked the bhikkhus to go and get explanation from Venerable Sariputta. Because Sariputta was such a wonderful Dhamma teacher. You can read in Madhyaminikaya, uh, Samaditya Sutta and so forth, to see Venerable Sariputta's wisdom. Even that Venerable Sariputta was not able to give an appropriate subject for meditation to his own disciple. So nowadays people say, people give subject for meditation to people. Even Venerable Sariputta could not do that. Only the Buddha gave subject for meditation quite appropriate to the personality. So when Venerable Sariputta took this disciple to the Buddha, at very first look at this monk, Buddha knew exactly what subject he needs. So he 
picked up a lotus. Just the opposite of uh, 32 impurities of the body, 32 parts of the body, just the opposite. Lotus, beautiful, very fresh, dripping water, very sweet, frag- sweet fragrance. And sometimes, you know, people commented, commented and said that the Buddha created lotus flower and gave him. Friends, if you know the reality, Buddha did not have to create any flower. Why? Every day people came to see the Buddha with flowers. And his chamber was full of flowers. That's why his chamber is called perfume chamber, Gandhakuti. Buddha's chamber is called Gandhakuti because it was full of fragrance of fresh flowers People that people brought. So he just picked one of those fresh flowers, fresh lotus, and gave to this monk and said, there is a pond. Stick this lotus in the ground and focus your mind on it. Of course, while he was doing it, some children also came and picked some lotus flowers and put there. And he was focusing on this lotus flower, so beautiful, full of fragrance, fresh and dripping water, and so beautiful. While he was focusing his mind on the flower, it slowly dried, withered, faded, color disappeared. It faded and dropped dead. Of course, in the scorching sun, it happened very quickly while he was watching. Then he realized impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness and attain enlightenment. You see? So, the particular manasikara should be used with impartial attitude, unbiased attitude, with the equanimity. If you practice mindfulness of uh, 32 parts of the body, there is a possibility of arising hatred. You begin to hate the body. Or there is a possibility of arising lust. Your lust can arouse. There is another story, Khayagata Satisutta. As I mentioned this morning, Khayagata Satisutta is another meditation Sutta. <coughs> Buddha taught this sutta to bhikkhus and went for, a, for his own retreat. When he came back, during his absence, what happened? These monks who were, not, who were not enlightened, meditating on the 32 parts of the body, and they, then they felt just like dead corpse hanging around their neck. And they feel so disgusted, so disappointed. They did not want to live because they were there so the body is so ugly, so so loathsome, so dirty and so forth. And then uh, there was a uh, sham monastic called uh, uh, Migalanda. And uh, one monk approached him and said, uh, you know, you do me a favor. Take my robes, take my arms balls, and uh, you can make little money, sell in the market, 
and take this razor, straight razor, and cut my throat. I don't want to live with this ugly body, dirty body, cut my throat. This man, with some hesitation, was thinking, how can I do that? How can I do it? Then when this monk said, you can get some money, make little money by selling my robes and arms ball, then told me, yeah, that is not a bad idea. <laughs> I can make little money. So he cut his throat, sold these things, and then he got taste of uh, getting money and went from kuti to kuti, asking monks, uh, you want to attain enlightenment quickly? I can send you to enlightenment very quickly. So he, they volunteered, he cut their heads. When Buddha returned from his retreat, he found the number of monks reduced. He asked Vendabala Ananda, Ananda, what happened? Vendabala Ananda said, this is what happened. They became so loathful of their body, they feel the body was so ugly, dirty, they killed themselves, committed suicide. Then Buddha immediately called the meeting of monks and gave, this, gave another sermon, that's called Anapana Satisutta. That is the commentarial explanation. But anyway, uh, this is another extreme. Therefore, when we practice mindfulness of the, the 32 parts of the body, we must remain equanimous. And there is another beautiful discourse in the same Madhyama Nikaya. This called uh, <coughs> Indriya Bhavana Sutta. In, in, Indriya uh, Vibhanga. Indriya Vibhanga Sutta. Uh, last ten uh, groups of suttas. And there Buddha said, when uh, uh, unattractive, loathsome uh, object arises, one should be able to practice equanimity. So there are various ways of practicing equanimity. And this is one object that we must use to practice, to gain equanimity. Equanimity is a wonderful subject. When we are mind, when we are mind, equanimity is very powerful, our mindfulness becomes pure. That is how you can see in the fourth jhana, when you attain the fourth jhana, your mindfulness becomes pure due to the presence of equanimity. Upekka satipari suddhing chatutta jhana upasampadhi vihyarati buddha said. Upekka satipari suddhing. Sati parisuddhing, mindfulness becomes pure because of the presence of equanimity. So this subject of meditation should be used to, purif- to develop your equanimity in order to purify your mindfulness. So that is one thing we must remember when we practice the fourth part of Kaigata, mindfulness of the body. And the fifth part is mindfulness of four elements. <coughs> and I, before I go to that one, I must give you um, the Buddha's simile 
to illustrate the meaning that I mentioned. The simile he gave was a bag full of grains. Remember? Sayata bhikkhe mutoli pura nana vitasa danyasa salinang vihinam mugganang masanang tilanang tamlulanang tamenang chakkuma puriso munchitva pasati munchitva pachavekati ime sali ime mugga ime tila ime tamlula and so forth. That means just like a man uh, there is a bag of grains, rice, uh, dal, uh, wheat, uh, barley, uh, hill rice, and so forth. That bag is mixed with all kinds of grains. So somebody with clear eyesight, the, this is the... Uboto Mukha Mutolipura, there are this bag has uh, two openings, <coughs> just like our bag. <laughs> we keep one opening closed and uh, open the other opening, and then we periodically open the other side. So, this bag also has two openings, and which is full of various types of grains. And one with good eyesight opened the bag and identified the grains inside the bag. When he identified the grains inside the bag, he says, this is rice, this is barley, this is wheat, this is dal, this is mumdal, and so forth. He does not say that this is rice, I love rice. This is barley. I hate barley. He does not say that. Impartially, just like a scientist who investigates an object under a powerful microscope, uh, just watch it to collect the data, the, the, the compositions, the in the object to collect the data without emotional reaction. So when we practice this particular part of meditation, we should not tell people to hate it or to love it. We must have the impartial, unbiased, equanimous attitude towards the parts of the body to see them impermanent, unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactory and selfless. Everything without any emotional reaction. This part is therefore very important part of mindfulness meditation. And then we go to the fifth class of uh, mindfulness of the body. Fifth class is uh, four elements. Four elements earth water, air, fire. This body is made up of these four elements. <coughs> and Buddha gave a simile of uh, how to um, practice impartial uh, attitude towards these four parts, four elements. 
the we lose the identity of uh, uh, the self or trying to identify self with any of the parts. We just look at them as objects. <coughs> Example Buddha gave there was, uh, suppose somebody slaughter a cow. This is very interesting in India. Using this kind of simile is very weird in modern term, because uh, India worship cows. And Buddha says that suppose somebody slaughtered the cow. This simply means that in the time of the Buddha, cows were slaughtered. People ate beef. When the Buddha introduced uh, this uh, non-violent uh, Dhamma, <coughs> those uh, beef eaters gave up eating meat, uh, beef, and then uh, became uh, non-violent. Anyway, uh, since this practice was there, Buddha used this as an example. Suppose somebody slaughtered an, a cow and cut it up into four parts and display in uh, cross-road. <coughs> when this man raised the cow, he has the concept of cow. When he lead the cow to abattoir, slaughtering place, he has the per perception of cow, concept of cow. After cutting it up, he doesn't have the perception of cow. He simply has the perception of beef. So when he sells, he does not sell cow. He sells beef. Sometimes uh, uh, some people who don't understand the meaning, they may mix up, they may use the same name. <coughs> One day when I was in uh, Sweden, uh, four uh, high school students, three uh, Muslim girls and a boy came to pick me up to bring to their school uh, to give a talk. On the way, one of the Muslim girls asked me, Do you eat pigs? She did not know the word the pork. She asked me, Do you eat pig? I said, No. Then I asked her, Do you? She said, I eat anything. <laughs> so anyway, this is beside the point. Anyway, sometimes when we don't know the word, we use wrong word. So when he says beef, after slaughtering the cow, he does not sell cow. He sells beef. His perception of cow perception is completely vanished from his mind. Similarly, when we analyze the body into parts and then contemplate on each part separately, we don't have the perception of being, I, my, mine concept will vanish from our mind. One of the things we, we practice, one of the things we knowledge or insight we gain from Vipassana meditation is the non-self. So the self-notion will completely vanish from our mind when we practice, when we come to this level of mindfulness meditation. 
four elements. <coughs> and these elements in uh, Maharavula Vada Sutta and many other places, Vindabhansar uh, Buddha and Buddha explain these elements, whether they are internal or external, are the same. Internal body is made up of external element and therefore internal uh, elements are the same as external elements and so forth. What happened to external elements happens to internal elements and so forth. He explained these things in detail. And therefore, this is the fourth uh, class of uh, mindfulness of the body. Fifth class is even more important. That is a more misunderstanding uh, we can find. That is after death. <coughs> because of this uh, different type of understanding, different people do different things to the body after death. In uh, uh, Buddha's teaching, what happened to the body is the same whether you believe in one thing or another. What happened to the body is the same. It decomposes, disintegrates, and rot, reduced to uh, bones, break the bones into pieces, shatters, reduced to dust, and disappears. This is the very natural, normal thing that happens to a body. You, you have to temporarily forget the belief system. But you have to accept the system of reality that happens to the body. So in order to gain, gain deeper insight into non-self, Buddha taught this meditation as the sixth class of mindfulness of the body. That eventually what will really happen to the body? Friends, this is one of the theme of our meditation retreats. Sometimes I teach ten-day course on the mindfulness of death. Uh, although it is mentioned as a part of Mahasatipatta and Sutta, but this is a subject by itself, mindfulness of the death or dead body. Now, <coughs> uh, there is a misunderstanding of this also. Uh, some people say uh, you have to see dead bodies to practice this meditation. Therefore, these days you cannot practice it because you do not see so many dead bodies on the street. It will never happen. <coughs> Nor can you go to mort. Everybody cannot go to the mortuaries to see dead bodies. Even if you see dead bodies in the mortuaries, you do not see them uh, decomposing. You see them very beautifully made with a lot of makeup and uh, sometimes when the body is in the coffin, it looks like uh, somebody coming out of a wedding. Beautiful grapes, the beautiful look at such a smiling face. People say looking at the corpse in the, in the coffin, they say, see, as if he is sleeping, and so forth. If you read and study uh, 
what the pathologists do and their assistants do in the mode, you will really understand what happened to the body. They spent so many hours, days, to make the body look natural. When we die, we don't look beautiful, we look very ugly, and nobody likes to look at it. So they have to take the body into the mode, and then do all sort of things. Mouth is open, they have to use certain things to close the mouth. Sometimes eyes open when we die, so we have to do certain things to close our eyes, and so forth and so on. lot of things there. I read a book, this thick book, where they explain what happened to the body, what the death means, and whether we really die, or uh, when we die, and is it really death, how can we determine the death, and so forth and so on. All these things I explain in the book. Anyway, however, when the body is dead, <coughs> Buddha said, uh, if, you, if it is possible for you to watch a body decomposing in the way the Buddha explained, that's perfectly all right. If not, Buddha used the method which can apply anytime, anywhere to our meditation practice. He used the phrase, Seyyatavi Bhikkhave, Sivitika Chadditang, Ekahamatangva, Dvihamatangva, Tihamatangva, Uddhumatakang, Vinilakang, Vipubbakidatang, So Imameva Kayang, Upasangarati, Ayampiko Kayo, Evang Dhammo, Evang Bhavi, Evang Anati Toti. Let me tell the meaning. He said, as if, as if you see a body dead one day, two days, three days, uh, uh, solemn, turn blue, and uh, uh, disfigured in a cemetery. <coughs> that means that is the natural thing that happens to the body. And then reflect. Then that means you have to have this image in the mind of a dead body. Not that you really see the body. You have this image in the mind. And then think, this will happen to this body of mind. Imameva kayang upasangarti evang bhavi evang dhammo, evang anatito, this body is not gone beyond that. This, what I saw, will happen to this body. This body after death will go through this process of decomposition without getting scared, upset, disappointed, emotional, just try to see the true nature of the body. That is the last stage of the body, <coughs> this body. So there are nine stages that Buddha explained in this particular section. The last stage uh, is the stage where your uh, 
bones uh, shattered here and there and then turn white, break into pieces, become dust and then dust will uh, be blown by the air and there will not be anything left. So, body eventually reduces to dust and disappears. This is the true nature of the body. So what this meditation teaches, this mindfulness of the body, is the, the process and the things that happen to the body proving that it is impermanent. That it is impermanent. So this impermanence we can see every moment, every time we meditate, not only in one posture, in one place, but all the time. But the last part, you had to have a, a lot of maturity, emotional maturity, lot of insight, lot of understanding, to have this vision, this understanding of what happened to the body after death. Friends, with this I like to stop talking. Uh, I think uh, I can, I don't mind spending a few more minutes if you have very burning question, uh, which you want to ask me now, uh, then we can stop this uh, talk. And the other three of the four foundations of mindfulness uh, are even more uh, profound and deep. As I said, I regret that I don't have time to explain all the four foundations. One foundation is enough to, out of these four foundations of mindfulness, first one has divided into uh, six. One of the six, the first part itself is enough if he practices mindfully to gain the seven factors of enlightenment. That is very clearly stated in Anapanasati Sutta. If you practice mindfulness of the body, you will gain the seven factors of enlightenment. How that happened? Let me say briefly. If you don't have a question, if you have a question, I answer the question. If not, let me explain how that happens. You practice mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing, first part. As I said, mindfulness of the breathing is the mindfulness of body. When you practice mindfulness of body, you practice, 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 practice mindfulness. Day and night you practice mindfulness. Then, then mindfulness becomes perfect. When the mindfulness becomes perfect, then you have completed the first factor of seven factors of enlightenment. What is the first factor of, what is the seven factors of enlightenment? Mindfulness, mindfulness, investigation, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration and equanimity. These are the seven factors of enlightenment. 
Of course, when you practice seven factors of enlightenment, you practice all the thirty-seven factors of enlightenment. That is little detail. I can explain all of them. Unfortunately, we don't have time. But just remember, when you practice mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breathing, you practice mindfulness. And that mindfulness practice leads to the uh, factor of enlightenment factor of investigation. What is that? What do you investigate? You investigate the same mindfulness. You investigate the same mindfulness. Now you don't investigate the body. You investigate the mindfulness itself. You can see this ana in Anapana Satsutta. I, I really invite all the serious meditators to read this material. As I said, not like reading a novel or newspaper, but read very seriously, very intentionally, uh, I mean, very intensely to understand the deep meaning of this sutta. So when you practice mindfulness of the body or breathing, you practice mindfulness of seven, uh, the factor of enlightenment, the factor of mindfulness. Then you investigate the mindfulness itself. Then when you investigate the mindfulness itself, you become so energetic. You don't feel sleepy, drowsy, lazy, and lethargic and boring, tiring, because you begin to open your mind deeper, wider, clearer, and you see so many Dhamma, deep, profound Dhamma, and you become energetic. Unremitting energy arises in you. Not physical hypertension, but mental energy to see the Dhamma more deeply. And when you see the Dhamma with lot of energy, what happens? You feel so full of joy. Friends, one has to go through this process to see how this joy arises. When you see the Dhamma, as the Buddha said, Dhamma is the truth. When you see the truth, you become full of joy. And that is, and you taste the, taste the truth. Uh, and that is why Buddha said, among the tastes, the tastiest things is the taste of truth. That is not what you have heard. You always have heard the truth is bitter. But Buddha said, among all the tasty things, the tastiest is the taste of truth. Satchang have sadhu tarang rasanang. In Alavaka Sutta, Buddha said, Satchang have sadhu tarang rasanang. Among tasty things, the tastiest is the knowledge of truth. When you taste this truth, you become full of joy full of joy. This joy doesn't come from blind faith, doesn't come from emotion. This is not uh, uh, nervous uh, 
uh, what you call uh, uh, excitement. Normally, when you have norm, uh, excitement, emotional excitement, you jump up and down, you kiss and hug and laugh and sing and so forth. But when this joy arises, you become tranquil. Tranquil. That is another factor of enlightenment, tranquility. When you are tranquil, you gain concentration. That is concentration factor of enlightenment. When you are tranquil, when you gain concentration, then you become equanimous. That is equanimity factor of enlightenment. When you gain equanimity, then the rest follows very easily. What is the rest? You have uh, Nibbida. Nibbida is dispassion. Dispassion does not mean uh, dislike or hate or uh, disappointment and uh, thinking that life is so boring and tiring and miserable, no point in living, let me commit suicide and so forth. Not that kind of negative thing. This passion is seeing with wisdom the truth. When you see things with wisdom, then you virag, non-attachment arises. Viraga, vimuchati, when non-attachment arises, your mind liberates from all kind of psychic irritants. So all this possible even by practicing the first part of four foundations of mindfulness, first part of mindfulness of the body. And Buddha repeated this twenty-one times in Mahasatipattana Sutta. Not in this way, but in uh, Anapana Satisutta he mentioned it four times by uh, understanding the way how he explained this in mindfulness of the breathing. Four times we can apply that to mindfulness of four foundations of mindfulness to see the twenty-one times how it arises. With this, friends, uh, I like to conclude this uh, this uh, talk, and uh, I don't think I have any time for answering questions. <laughs>